This is Exchanges at Goldman Sachs, where people from the firm share their insights on developments currently shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. I'm Jake Seward, Global Head of Corporate Communications at Goldman Sachs. As the Fed moves out of its quantitative easing program, the European Central Bank appears poised to start a cycle of its own. Here to discuss some of the macro themes facing investors in 2015 is Jonathan Biner, the Chief Investment Officer and Co-Head of the Global Fixed Income Liquidity Management Team in Goldman Sachs Asset Management, also known as GSAM. Jonathan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Jake. What is the big picture outlook for next year? Um, you know, we're, Is this the year we'll finally see tighter monetary policy in the U.S., higher growth rates, and maybe even a hint of inflation? We do believe that this is going to be a very uh, interesting transition period from what has been a period of extremely easy monetary policy around the world. So interest rates basically 0% here in Europe, in Japan, and we do believe that we're going to be moving from a maximum easy monetary policy to, be, to move towards a neutral policy. Why is that? We do think that the U.S. economy has moved from a very painful and long recovery phase from the 2008 uh, crisis, uh, where we were able to achieve on an ongoing basis something like a 2% GDP growth to something that looks more like 3% or more for the next couple of years. So strong economic growth in the U.S., on the back of that, we think also the labor market will continue to recover. Now, we've had uh, significant job creation over the last several years. If anything, we think that starts to accelerate. We've been getting uh, 200,000 plus new jobs per month on average uh, throughout this year, but it's actually recently accelerated into the 250 to even 275,000 jobs per month. And we think that also is sustainable over the next year or two. Um, so you have the unemployment rate, which has come down from a height of around 10% to, uh, to something sub 6%. We think that continues and that we see something that looks like 5% and perhaps even less than 5% by the end of next year. The implications of that is that the policy setting, at least here in the U.S., which has been set at 0% short-term interest rates, the Fed has bought a tremendous amount of securities as well in the secondary market, which they've now stopped. We think they start that process of normalizing rates sometime in the middle of next year, uh, and that by the end of next year, we probably have uh, the Fed funds target rate at something of about 1%. So the market is supposed to anticipate these kinds of changes, and yet here we are as we enter 2015 uh, with a 10-year still hovering just above 2%. So is the market not really on top of what's going to happen? Everyone knows it's coming. Why is the market so skeptical that rates are heading higher here in the U.S.? Yeah, I think uh, you're right. There is definitely, we talk about decoupling from a fundamental standpoint in the U.S. relative to the rest of the world. There's also been a decoupling between the fundamentals here and the market. And uh, the Fed actually comes out with forecasts uh, as to what they think not just growth and inflation will be, but even what their expected Fed funds rate would be. And they have for some time now said that that liftoff date is going to happen sometime in the middle of next year. The market has actually priced that further and further out. And not only that, they've also priced in a very slow 
normalization process, even slower than what the Fed uh, has suggested is consistent with uh, their objectives, meeting their objectives. So you're right, there's a disconnect there between market pricing in the, in the bond market and expectations of economists, the Fed, and certainly uh, ourselves as well. Why is that? Uh, a number of factors. Uh, I think in, in some sense we started out, it's a while ago now, but uh, we had the polar vortex issue in the first quarter of this year. So everyone was also expecting 3% type GDP levels and we actually got negative GDP. So that was the first thing that got, I think, investors a little bit and policymakers a little bit concerned about their forecast. Now, of course, we did rebound from that and the data has actually been relatively strong. Uh, but we've also seen, in our view, a significant technical impact in the markets. Uh, so in some sense, it was quite consensus, as you said, that interest rates would be going up, starting to go up this year. Uh, and so I think a lot of investors were positioned for that. And when it didn't start to happen, uh, investors pulled back. And so uh, essentially, you know, covering short positions or buying bonds uh, that maybe they had weighted uh, because they were expecting higher rates. And so we had a lot of pressure uh, of prices going higher, rates going lower uh, on the back of the technical supply demand uh, uh, backdrop. And then I think the other thing is a real concern about inflation. And so that really is going to be the big determining factor as we go out over the next couple of years uh, is what happens to inflation. And so Inflation generally around the world is quite low. There are some policymakers that are quite worried that inflation is going in the wrong direction, notably the European Central Bank and the Bank of Japan, uh, where they're concerned about disinflation or even deflation and are continuing to press on easy monetary policy. Uh, in the U.S., we have inflation rates have bottomed, but they're still below the target of the Federal Reserve. The Federal Reserve targets 2%. Uh, consumer inflation. Uh, we, have, uh, we have come off the lows, but we're still hanging around the 1.5% level. And the Fed does want to see inflation start to go higher. And so uh, that's another factor, which is everybody talks about uh, the fact that there's just not a lot of inflationary pressure, uh, either in prices or in wages. And that's another factor is even though the unemployment rate has come down so significantly, uh, wages have gone up at a very slow rate. Again, they're actually going up at a faster pace than what they were in the last year or so, but they're still going up at a very slow pace. And so again, market participants, policymakers are focused very much on inflation and particularly wage inflation, and in some sense waiting to actually see it happen rather than forecasting. Now, Europe, you mentioned Europe briefly. Europe, five years on from the crisis, uh, still looks to be trying to find the key to growth. And the ECB has been talking up some measures that the United States has, has tried, and, and you could argue they've largely succeeded here. Can we expect, um, they've telegraphed it, but can we expect Europe to take a very different tack in 2015? Well, I think they've, they've yes, I think is the answer, but I think they've started that process already. Uh, but it does look to us that they're going to uh, continue to move towards an easier stance in the beginning of 2015. So if you think about Europe, you know, Europe has had a number of, uh, of shocks. They, of course, had the 2008-2009 severe recession, as we all did uh, around the world. 
they rebounded from that, but then they had the 2010-2011 uh, European crisis, which really was a fiscal crisis. We could debate as to why um, you know, they got into that situation relative to the U.S. I think a number of factors. One is that their banking system didn't take the pain in a very quick and severe way that we did here in the U.S. Uh, the other thing is that they, their structure, of course, is very different than the U.S., where they have you know, many different nations that use the same currency, so they don't have the same currency flexibility um, that we would have here, or fiscal uh, flexibility. And, of course, they also uh, had a, a situation where there was a, a real concern as it relates to some countries uh, in terms of the ability to actually continue to service the debt. Uh, and so that all conspired to creating a second crisis and a second recession, uh, which they are still just recovering from. And so the ECB has, in fact, been aggressive. Uh, of course, they were aggressive during the European crisis in terms of uh, the so-called OMT, which is, is, uh, is a decision that, if necessary, they would buy uh, sovereign debt. Uh, to avoid a, a, a continued crisis. Uh, they, of course, have had uh, very low interest rates. And in fact, they brought their interest rates negative at the short end, which is something, in fact, the U.S. and Japan have not done. So that, they've actually been pretty aggressive. Where they have been less aggressive is in the so-called quantitative easing uh, arena. They have done it. They've, they have increased the central bank's balance sheet by buying assets and making loans, but they haven't done it nearly to the extent that the U.S. did or the Bank of Japan did. So that's the likely next significant move is to employ a, uh, a quantitative easing program that will increase their balance sheet and therefore on the, the, uh, uh, the liability side of the central bank ledger is more money. So creating money and buying assets with newly created money. Uh, and it will likely include a diversified portfolio of sovereign debt. Uh, which is something they've been somewhat loath to do because there are political uh, limitations uh, and certainly concerns about buying government bonds, again, particularly uh, those that may actually have some credit risk associated with them. But we think that they will actually, uh, because of the fact that inflation is still surprising, uh, if anything, to the downside, growth continues to be weak, the unemployment rate uh, has not fallen the way it has in the U.S., that uh, that they are uh, going to move into that arena and start buying uh, sovereign debt in a much wider basis. There's been a, a lot of talk about the lack of liquidity in, in some of the fixed income markets and um, a lot of debate about why that is and whether it has to do with the impact of regulation. Um, how do you think about that issue around liquidity in the fixed income markets? Yeah, so I, I think part of it is true, which is that uh, if you think about where we are today uh, relative to where we were uh, before the crisis, uh, the financial institutions are uh, providing, in many says, uh, cases, the same function, uh, but their, their balance sheet and their willingness to warehouse risk uh, is significantly diminished. You could argue that's entirely because of regulation. You could argue that's because you know, lots of losses were created in the wake of the, the crisis. I think it's a combination of both. But the reality is that uh, the financial institutions, the, the intermediaries where we transact uh, through uh, within the fixed income market uh, are definitely uh, not positioning the same amount of risk on their own balance sheet than they were before. 
So what are the implications of that? Uh, people will look at that and say, well, that's obviously a bad thing. We actually, GSAM, see that as, you know, there's some challenging aspects to that, but there's also some positive aspects to that. Uh, and what we mean by that is, in some sense, the by acting as principal in the past uh, in a much bigger way where uh, if an investor wanted to or a set of investors wanted to sell assets or reduce a, a certain type of risk, the street could take in, position that risk, uh, and charge essentially for that. Uh, and then they would distribute the risk over time or they would, they would hold on to some of it. Uh, now, if that's no longer the case, when a large group of investors want to de-risk, because the financial institutions are not, they may be taking the other side and acting as intermediary, but if they're not positioning that risk, that means that some other investor or set of investors has to be willing to step in in a short-term basis and actually position that risk. So the implications of that are, well, if you're the seller, you may actually have to take a lower price than you would otherwise have been to reduce your risk in a meaningful way, especially if there are other like investors doing the same at the same time. The flip side to that, of course, is that if you are in a position where you can actually be the provider of liquidity, uh, that you can actually get outsized returns. And so there are a number of vehicles that have actually been put in place in some sense to fill in that gap, uh, so-called unconstrained fixed income portfolios, opportunistic uh, portfolios, where that's actually the objective is to take advantage of dislocations in markets. And so these portfolios in some sense are, uh, are unlevered pools of capital where investors say, I want to take I want to generate a better than you know the risk-free rate return, uh, and in some sense, these these portfolios are acting as the uh, the opportunistic investor and the portfolio that's actually willing to take a risk that they didn't want necessarily the prior day or the prior week, but if the price moves enough, uh, they're willing to to expose the portfolio to that and and generate attractive uh, risk-adjusted returns. So. When you think about liquidity, generally people say, well, this is all bad. Uh, our view is that the market still functions, the market still clears, uh, but it does mean that there may be bigger price moves to actually clear the market. Uh, and it then depends on which side of the market you're at to whether that is a good thing or a bad thing. Interesting. It's very hard to generalize about retail, but, but obviously is... There, there's been some concern that retail investors, as they've plowed into um, to fixed income assets, uh, don't understand that losses, significant losses, are possible if the market moves uh, in, in a dramatic way. And people have a very old-fashioned view of what bond investing is and that it's safe. Um, uh, what do you say when people make the argument that retail is not prepared for big movements? Well, I think generally speaking, that's true. Uh, I do think, you know, frankly, it's not just retail. I think lots of investors do have an emotional reaction sometimes to losses. Uh, obviously, no investor wants losses. If you're taking any kind of risk, you're doing it because you think you can generate some extra returns, uh, at least over time. And we have seen time and time again that investors, when the volatility does rear its ugly head, which eventually it does, uh, and prices fall and returns are not what you wanted them to be, uh, that some, at least some set of investors won't look to the long term and will react uh, and, and sometimes react at, at the worst time uh, in retrospect. So I think that's, that is likely the case. 
um, there has been a tremendous amount of debt issued, whether it's by governments or corporations. Uh, at, and at very low yields. At too. very low yields, exactly. So the, for many people, the low yield implies that the risk is, is low as well. Perhaps. And, and investors have, I think, if anything, gotten more enamored with, uh, with fixed income because of the fact that the yield that they get on their checking account or their savings account is zero. essentially zero now. So uh, in some sense, that's been a, a result of the policy. Uh, which is very easy monetary policy, low interest rates, gets investors of all kinds to take more risk than perhaps they would have uh, otherwise. And so uh, I think it is the case that there's lots of duration risk or interest rate risk uh, that are in uh, lots of investors' portfolios, some of which uh, is not entirely obvious uh, or you know, thinking about fixed income, and it's even in the name, right? I buy it because of the income. The income isn't what it used to be. Uh, but I think a lot of investors, particularly retail investors, uh, who maybe uh, have just bought uh, a, a portfolio because they liked the yield, the distributions that they were getting, may be surprised when interest rates inevitably do go up. Uh, and like I was saying uh, before, I think uh, if lots of investors do get worried enough about rising interest rates, they see prices start to fall and they get worried, okay, this is it, uh, and interest rates are rising, uh, you could see that feed on itself and you could see significant declines in prices uh, because, you know, if, if a whole bunch of investors want to get out of bonds, the bonds don't go anywhere. Somebody has to buy them. Especially with low liquidity. Exactly. So you could have dislocations. Of course, it hasn't happened yet to a large degree, uh, but we do think there's that risk out there. And, and when that happens or if that happens, uh, what, what kinds of alternatives uh, should investors look at in the fixed income space? Well, I think you know, what you want to do is try to uh, look at the alternatives now before it happens. And uh, I think a lot of investors have. So you know, one thing uh, certainly that, that uh, we would suggest is to try to diversify bond portfolios away from simply just taking interest rate risk. So what do we mean by that? You know, most bonds, you know, a fixed rate bond has a certain amount of interest rate risk. And you could see that because no matter what type of bond it is, its yield today is most likely a lot lower than what it has been uh, over time. And that's basically because the Fed has engineered a, a significant reduction in rates, not just short-term interest rates, but even out the curve as they bought a lot of long-term debt. So the general level of interest rates is very low. All types of bonds, not just treasuries, but all types of bonds essentially are priced off that lower yield. So uh, if you hold treasuries or if you hold corporate bonds or you hold uh, CDs even uh, that are, you know, have longer maturities, uh, you essentially have interest rate risk. Uh, and even if that's a very high credit quality portfolio, uh, there is risk associated with it. Not necessarily that you won't get paid back at maturity, but that the yield that you are achieving uh, at purchase will in some period of time in the next six months, one year, two year, three year, what have you, is going to actually look very low. Uh, and, uh, and investors who actually have cash will actually be getting significantly higher levels of income. So what do you do about that? And, and the reality is that most bond allocations, that's the dominant risk. So what we suggest is that you should try to invest uh, in portfolios that that are not loaded up on that risk. And, and so how do you do that? There's a number of different ways. Uh, first of all, owning securities that have very short maturities. 
that's a way of doing it. So of course you can invest in money market type products. The yield is essentially zero right now. Uh, so you're not gonna get much if any income, but of course if we're right and eventually Fed funds rates go up, you'll start to get income. The other way is to, to invest in floating rate assets. So even securities that have maturities that are much longer, but if the, the interest rate that they pay is floating and generally they float with market interest rates, uh, then that also can cushion you from, uh, from rising rates. And uh, one asset class that's seen a lot of uh, interest, I think in many respects because of this, is uh, so-called bank loans or leverage loans or high yield floating rate loans. Uh, essentially, they're all different names for the same thing. Uh, but these are securities that are issued by corporations, generally a bit higher credit risk corporations, uh, but these securities tend to have floating rates uh, and uh, generally have, uh, have some security behind them, uh, which makes them a little bit uh, less risky than typical high yield bonds. And they have this floating rate nature, which also makes them attractive. The last uh, thing that I would highlight is also these unconstrained fixed income portfolios. And uh, these portfolios, uh, I would say, are more heterogeneous than in if you buy a total return fund or a high yield bond fund or a muni fund. Uh, so different managers of these products will manage them in different ways. But I think one of the things that is uh, relatively consistent is that the duration, the interest rate risk of these portfolios uh, has been mitigated in some way. It can either be mitigated because of uh, an allocation to cash, it can be mitigated through floating rate securities, uh, it can also be mitigated, and certainly is the case in, in our funds, but I think many, where they actually use hedging instruments, such as interest rate futures contracts or what's known as interest rate swaps, which actually can convert a fixed rate bond into essentially a floating rate bond. So all of these things uh, can make sense in a portfolio. Uh, and while more traditional fixed income assets, I think have a place in a portfolio, but they tend to be a dominant part of the fixed income allocation, we would suggest uh, diversifying to some of these other things. Either it be very short dated, high quality fixed income, floating rate uh, portfolios, or more opportunistic unconstrained portfolios where the manager essentially can try to uh, add value by determining how much interest rate risk to take at different points of time. Very interesting. Any final thoughts uh, about the, the year ahead? We talked a little bit about Europe, a little bit about, um, about the United States. How about the rest of the world? Are there opportunities out there? You know, it's interesting because as we speak, you know, oil prices are falling uh, seemingly, you know, a couple percent every day. That has a big impact on countries broadly across the world. Some of that impact is positive. In fact, in aggregate, we think it's a big positive. But there are certainly some countries that are exposed because they are energy exporters. And so those assets have been particularly hard hit because investors are worried about that fact. And I think some opportunities are actually being created. Um, so, but it's, it's a volatile situation right now, but some of the emerging markets uh, assets uh, are starting to fall significantly in price. And so, you know, countries that have clearly some risk associated with them, either because of geopolitical risk, policy risk, or energy risk, such as Venezuela, Russia, uh, Ukraine, Argentina. Um, these are countries that, you know, all have some risks associated with them, of course. Yeah. But as we like to think of it as there's a price for everything. And so having small allocations to assets that have significantly higher yields 
uh, if that's priced accurately or priced in an attractive way, uh, then that might make sense. Uh, so again, we think we're in a transition period there uh, where value is in the process of being created. Uh, so we wouldn't be jumping in in a huge way today, but uh, that's another interesting area of the bond market uh, uh, which we're, we're focused uh, quite a bit on and, and trying to understand with given such a big move in, in energy prices, who are the winners and who are the losers? And then overlay that with valuations. How, you know, what are the different yields in the different uh, securities and figure out um, you know, where attractive investments. But I, you know, we have no doubt that with volatility creates some risks, but it also creates some opportunities. Some more differentiation. Yep. Well, thanks, Jonathan. Thanks for joining us. That's all for this edition of Exchanges at Goldman Sachs. Until next time, I'm Jake Seward. Thanks for listening. This podcast was recorded on December 15th, 2014. The views and opinions expressed herein should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities, and such views and opinions may differ from those of Goldman Sachs Global Investment Research or other departments or divisions of Goldman Sachs and its affiliates. This information may not be current, and Goldman Sachs has no obligation to provide any updates or changes. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast and any liability therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice in this podcast. In addition, The receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by any Goldman Sachs entity or individual to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity. No part of this podcast may, without GSAM's prior written consent, be reproduced, redistributed, published, copied, or duplicated in any form by any means.